On today's episode, Shin Splints. Is there a solution? With Ben Lindsay. Welcome to the Run Smarter Podcast, the podcast helping you overcome your current and future running injuries by educating and transforming you into a healthier, stronger, smarter runner. If you're like me, running is life, but more often than not, injuries disrupt this lifestyle. And once you are injured, you're looking for answers and met with bad advice and conflicting messages circulating the running community. The world shouldn't be like this. You deserve to run injury-free and have access to the right information. That's why I've made it my mission to bring clarity and control to every runner. My name is Brody Sharp. I am a physiotherapist, a former chronic injury sufferer, and your podcast host. I am excited that you have found this podcast and by default become the Run Smarter Scholar. So let's work together to overcome your injury, restore your confidence, and start spreading the right information back into your running community. So let's begin today's lesson. Thank you for joining me on another episode. Um, Today we have Ben Lindsay, who is a managing director at Solution. And you'll know um, exactly how that's spelled because it's the title of this episode. Um, And it's something a bit different today because we're going to not only talk about shin splints, which I've already had an episode on, but we're going to talk about his product, which is actually helping shin splint sufferers. And so... We delve into the science behind it, um, the randomized controlled trials they've done, um, exactly what shin splints is, what we should be doing concurrently with this device, what the device actually is. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a really nice episode. I'm really glad we did this with Ben. Um, a few things that I'll mention. Uh, he, at the end of the episode, um, Ben does discuss how you can get the product and where you can go and he offered a, a discount. So we do have a discount code on offer. Um, I didn't know we were going to do this <laughs> until uh, it got to the end and he said, well, that's what we had planned on doing. So um, that was brilliant. However, um, there is currently, I, I did after the interview, talk to Ben and ask if there's, um, if they do international shipping and they are currently shipping to Australia only or shipping within Australia only. But the um, plan is to have international shipping to the US and the UK by the end of the year. And so if you're listening to this in the future, um, it's definitely a possibility that it's available to you. Me, myself, um, with my training, I'm in a really good patch at the moment. I finished my 145k bike ride with a couple of mates two weekends ago and now set sights on the trail series here in Victoria in Melbourne that I usually do. We didn't do it last year because of the epidemic, but um, setting my sights, I think the first one is about five weeks away. So it's good to have a race to prepare for. Um, I'm building up my mileage slowly, but nicely. And I'm actually feeling quite strong, still doing my strength training, still being sensible with the, the training that I am doing. And yeah, it's all going really well. So I'll keep you up to date with that and how my body holds up. I always try and if some things do arise, do like to share the smart moves that I'm making, the smart decisions that I'm making within my training to overcome any niggles, uh, because I think it's always good to share these things and um, share my successes, but also my downfalls or my 
mistakes that I might have made, so I'll keep you posted. Uh, I'll continue building up my mileage and slightly increasing my speed, and we'll see how my body holds up. Let's let's see how we go. <laughs> All right, let's get underway and talk about shin splints and the solution. Ben, welcome to the Run Smarter Podcast. How are you today? Good, Brody. How are you going? Very good, mate. Uh, I'm excited to have you on because it's something uh, quite new that we don't usually do. Um, so before we get started about the product and everything that we're going to discuss, how about you just introduce yourself and your background and your yep. role within Solution? Yep. So my name's Ben Lindsay. I'm an Australian national medalist swimmer. Uh, I represented Australia at the World Cups. Uh, and basically, I used to study oil and gas civil engineering, and I found it pretty dreary and dull. And then I found this stream of engineering, uh, biomedical engineering, and I thought, hey, that looked pretty cool. Um, I felt like I could intertwine my knack for building stuff with sports medicine and headed down that path. And since I've started that journey, I've built and tinkered with a few things, um, a few medical devices, but the one we're here to talk about today is for medial tibial stress syndrome, so shin splints. Uh, it was an injury when I got it as a swimmer, I was just put on a bike, wasn't the end of the world. I was just told, haha, you're a swimmer trying to run, suck up, suck it up. Uh, but for my colleagues, Will and Rosa, Will was a runner, he's now a medical doctor, Rosa was a gymnast, uh, and now a medical product designer. If they got MTSS, medial tibial stress syndrome, it was could be a season ruiner. So we decided to pair all our minds together, try and develop a product to work as an adjunct to what currently worked, try and see if we could speed things up a bit, uh, make the treatment a little bit more reliable. Uh, and that's exactly what we did. And I'm the managing director of Solution, so I work on it full-time. Uh, Rosa works on it full-time as well. And Will, he's full-time in operating theatres and has to pick up the phone early in the morning and late at night whenever cool. we have questions for him. So huh. so you've, you've pretty much built a team that covers yep. all sectors. So you've got like the, the medical backgrounds and then you've also yep. got the product development and all those solutions. Yep. Yep. So it was just the three of us. We started off on Will's college dorm floor. So all the old photos are of this old raggedy carpet with this horrible red couch in the corner <laughs> of us kind of trying to work it out with a whiteboard we pinched. Uh, and then, yeah, now took it all the way through product development, um, got some money together to make it a reality. And then, you know, gave it to some sports physicians to do their studies on it, um, crossed our fingers to see if it would work. Uh, and then, yeah, now we're here, a, wow. a year of it on the market. So when you decide to put your heads together and create something, yep. how did you come to the shin splints verdict? So coming from a swimming background, so I met Will first at, at the AIS in the food hall and I was all like, come on, Will, let's do something for shoulders, you know, because I had horrible shoulders as a swimmer. And he was like, no, 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 we've got to do uh, this injury called shin splints. And I was like, oh, go on. And then I'd had it every swimmer I'd known had known and had it whenever we tried to do cross training. That's the, the joke that I've learned now across physiotherapy and podiatry. Anytime a swimmer tries to run, they're just going to get riddled with injuries. Uh, but then he, he kind of walked me through it and, you know, here's an injury that he battled with. And then every runner I met at the AIS, whether they're the Paralympic runners or, you know, the Olympic level runners, it was an injury that if they hadn't 
had it. They knew plenty of people who did. And it wasn't something where it was a little niggle for a lot of them. Like every now and then we, we were hearing stories of the little shin tickle and someone got over it nice and quick. But for, for a majority of them, it seemed like a very bad, bad injury to get. And we thought, hey, let's, let's have a crack at this. Looked at plenty of literature reviews, a lot of research and kind of developed our own hypothesis on how we might help treat the injury. Yeah, cool. I guess my next question would be if you've delved into literature and you've obviously working with a lot of people with shin splints, yep. is there anything that you have come across that um, you might find is a very common misconception or somewhere where the, the information about shin splints is maybe misinterpreted or misunderstood? Any very common things that come to mind? Yeah, this is a, a rabbit hole. Um, so there's a sports physician in Brisbane, Matthew Hislop. He's got a nice differential table for physiotherapists and podiatrists and sports physicians to navigate through the differentials. So the of exert, lower leg exertional leg pain. Um, he's actually, his study was on popliteal artery entrapment syndrome, but the table is just a great summary of medial tibial stress syndrome, stress fractures, chronic exertional compartment syndrome and anatomical and functional popliteal artery entrapment syndrome. Um, and basically a lot of the misconceptions are right there in the table. As soon as someone gets pain in their shin, shin splints. The problem is there's a variety of injuries that fall under the umbrella. The most common being medial tibial stress syndrome. But for a lot of these other injuries, you need a different course of treatment. Um, there's ranges in severity ranges in difficulty to treat and you know as I said earlier some people get a shin tickle um, medial tibial stress syndrome on the spectrum of it being a bone loading injury with a few other things uh, uh, playing along there you know you're looking at something that yeah sure it can be a shin tickle but if you if you don't take care of yourself you can develop a stress fracture be thrown in a boot immobilized and then that's a a big chunk of the season, potentially your whole season, uh, down, down the hole. Mm. I guess it's like, a yes, there's a very close in proximity. I think shin splints is just very, it's very like the first thing that people think about when they think of shin pain, shin pain, it's like uh, the most yeah. commonly known. It's the most out there in regards yeah. of like consciousness for all runners. Yeah, yeah. And so as soon as you start getting shin pain, you think, yeah, it must be shin splints. Yeah. But, it's there's several other pathologies yeah. there, which if you yeah. get wrong, it can go yeah. very wrong. If you yeah. misdiagnose or get a stress fracture assessed down the track when the pathology is quite progressed and the yeah. symptoms are quite severe, you're in for a long road to recovery. Whereas yeah. if it's picked up very soon, then yeah. it can be dealt with a, a lot more manageable. Yeah. Um, so when I delved into the research around shin splints, when yeah. I been doing podcast episodes and I've been doing like online courses and things. There seems to be a couple of competing theories in terms of the pathology itself. Yeah. Um, <laughs> one being that it's more of like a traction issue. It's more of like bone that attaches onto the shin. The, the muscle when you run pulls on that bone constantly. Yeah. And if it's yeah. too much for it, if it's too much for it to handle, then that actual pulling of the bone from the muscle starts to cause some sort of irritation and like yep. the, um, yeah, the outer layer of the bone starts becoming irritated and then it yep. turns into shin splints. 
Yeah. Whereas the other one, the other competing theory kind of removes that muscle component and just thinks yeah. it's more just bone um, reaction, bone stress, yeah. Um, yeah. maybe tibial bending as you like yeah. contact the ground and yep. make it like if it's produced in like an overuse scenario, then that muscle, uh, the bone itself do- starts to become sore. Uh, yeah. Are you in agreement with that or would there be any other ideas thrown around? I'm not trying to dodge a bullet when I say the pathophysiology is not well understood. Um, I love this rabbit hole. Uh, so I've been fortunate enough to chat with plenty of people about it. I know, I remember this, to, to one of your earlier points, this musculoskeletal podiatrist in the UK, Nick Knight, he told me, I haven't seen the list. He was just like, shin pain. There's 150 reasons a shin can hurt. Uh, and then we've got to help them narrow it down. And unfortunately, when we narrow it down to medial tibial stress syndrome, if we're looking, we navigate the differentials with the runner, get, rule out all these other injuries. You know, we're looking at the tenderness on the distal third to touch for a spread. So five centimetres or more. We're looking for them not to have a stress fracture. So I think one of the common ways to rule that out is the single hop, hop test. So it's not painful on that initial impact. And maybe I think from the research, it's they can last about 10 hops um, of pain. You can correct that um, being the physiotherapist as well, if I'm wrong. But um, there's all these things and you, you navigate down to medial tibial stress syndrome. And then all of a sudden it's like, well, well done. You're there and no one can really conclude what's going on. So you go down this whole, whole complicated path and then you get... yeah. You get somewhere, but it's not, it's not like you've got from A to B. Like it's not a concrete point. And, and you're right. So the research is talking about bone loading, like a bone stress response. So we've got, you know, excessive load causing the bone to break down at a rate uh, that's quicker than what it is being remodeled and building back up. So we see, you know, based on the Fredrickson MRI classification system, I know it's from radiopedia and for radiologists, but it's some good imagery there. So you get the inflammation of the periosteum, the periostitis, followed by if they continue to excessively load, the bone marrow edema, continue to excessively load, we see the intracortical signals. So imagine you've got two limestone blocks next to each other um, and one of them's got an ant's nest of tunnels through it and you hit both. The one with the ant's nest of tunnels through it's gonna be more brittle and it's gonna break so all this cortical bone is just deteriorating and can lead to a stress fracture. So that's one avenue. The problem with that is there's, for example, there's a researcher I spoke to, Joshua Maddock from University of Wollongong, podiatrist, doing plenty of research into MTSS. Depending on the study, you may or may not see periostitis in, in, in sufferers of MTSS. And then the other, the other avenue away from bone loading is, like you said, the, the fascial traction. And I think, so I love history a bit uh, with the injury. So I think it was, it was late 50s. It might have been 1958, if I'm going to have a real good guess, that uh-huh. shin splints was first defined in, 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 in research. And it was initially defined as a, as a fascial traction or a fasciopathy or a fascial traction injury. Uh, and then it wasn't until the 80s that medial tibial stress syndrome was defined because everyone started, like we were talking about, this umbrella term of shin splints started encompassing all these other things. And then the American Medical Association went, we've had enough. We're going to 
put this group, this medial tibial stress syndrome over here away from all the other terms. So there's a clearer definition. And I wouldn't say there's any clarity since, since that, too much clarity since we see for the fascial traction to work, you know, we're looking, we're looking at what fascial attachments are along that distal third of the, of the medial tibial border. So that inside border of, of the shin on the furthest third away. So the closest third to the, to the foot, you know, depending on the cadaveric study. So for your listeners that, you know, those fortunate individuals who donate their bodies to science uh, when they, when they get looked at uh, un, under the, under the scalpel, um, depending on the study, there's no muscle fascial attachments to that area or there is, uh, and it highlights a huge anatomical variability. Um, you know, a recent study showed that 33% of males do have a soleus, so your calf muscle attaching to the distal third and 72.5% of females do. But then a re the study just prior to that showed that no one has any muscle fascial attachments. So I think, cool, you've arrived at medial tibial stress syndrome. Um, there's two common theories. There's the bone loading, there's the fascial traction. There's a lot of interplay there. Our belief at solution is there's an interplay of both based on it's not just trying to dodge a bullet. The analogy we use, I can get into in a sick. Um, and I think what we've got to accept here is that, you know, both, both can be at play. You know, we see with the bone loading, the graded running programs taking a while to get people back. That's a good resource to address excessive bone loading, helping people kind of reset and build back up without completely resting with the fascial traction stuff, you know, it's in the research and, you know, we see patients who are using the solution return too quick for it to be a bone loading injury with no recurrence. And for me, it's kind of like it starts to, if we had a scale here of bone loading versus fascial traction, those patients who return really quick, um, which is quicker than typical, like what we would expect to, for me, I don't think there's much of a bone loading injury going on there. It seems to be there's, it's more of a soft tissue, potentially fascial traction injury there. But look, as I said, I think more research is needed because it's poorly understood. And unfortunately you're at a very foggy B uh, when you go from A to B and get narrowed down to MTSS. Mm, yeah. So what you're saying is like, it's so hard to come up with a very accurate diagnosis and pathology because all the stuff that we're finding is so inconsistent there's yeah. the the variety yeah. the variability between yep. muscle attachments and loading and symptoms yep. are, are way too different for us to you know house it in and it fits yep. what because i follow um simon bartold and yep. he pretty much says that yeah you diagnose shin splints when you rule out everything else <laughs> and so when you <laughs> yeah, yeah it's it, it kind of raises the point okay why do we is a diagnosis that important when it comes to shin yeah. splints? And what makes me think of if it's important? Yes, it's important if we rule out any serious pathology. So yeah. if there's anything there like a stress fracture yeah. um, that needs to be diagnosed, then that's important. But mm -hmm. if we rule out all these serious pathologies and we're left with this muffled kind of not entirely understanding what's going on with the pathology, but yeah. you know, it's, shin splints whatever that is yeah does it really matter does it really matter what the pathophysiology is if the yep. treatment is quite similar and the the response is quite similar yeah so 
what do you think about that? Do we actually need to know what's going on in order to, to get these people better faster? I think the best, the best outcome of being able to determine the difference on a patient, whether it is more skewed to the bone loading injury and kind of the fasciopathy or fascial traction um, is you can probably set a clear expectation on their return to sport. You know, we see like, it's really, it's really hard. Like you've got, you know, Martin Moen, the, the, the Dutch researcher who looks a lot into medial tubular stress syndrome, we're starting to see, you know, it, it can take nine months plus for, for runners to return at a, with, no, with no recurrence of the injury. But then also we see, you know, and hear of people out there who return far quicker than that. So I think the problem, if, in, in terms of just being able to give a clear expectation to the patient or the runner, um, it would be nice. Like it would be a really good thing to go, all right, I think this is more soft tissue. We can probably expect you to potentially return much quicker than, all right, oh dear, um, you've got a really nasty stress response occurring here. We're going to have to deload you and progressively build you back up. And all right, you've had it for eight weeks plus now. Uh, unfortunately, you're in the group where, <laughs> you know, you're looking at potentially a nine month return, uh, nine month plus to, to get over this injury. If you were able to navigate that, I think that would be the benefit of understanding. But, you know, when we get to, when we talk about how, how the solution works, you'll see the way we designed it was, you know, it was initially more the bone loading side, but what's been happening since it's been on the market. And since we've spoken to more and more physiotherapists and researchers is they're like, cool, your device works, but in this population of patients, it works for a different reason than you thought. Um, which is still good, but it's this slight difference. Um, and if there was a way for us to help diagnose that or, you know, help, help, like help practitioners, yeah, clearly, clearly get a, give clear expectations to the runner. I think that would be the key benefit in, you know, being able to navigate it. But, you know, other than that, like you said, if, if they're presenting with symptoms, like I think the, the current standards of, of, of diagnosing the injury yeah you navigate the differentials and then saw it power patients sort of touch for five centimeters or more along the, the distal third um if that's one of the key key things we're really looking for just patient kind of reported you know like a pain measure at the moment nothing really too much just quickly chiming in here to let you scholars know i have just updated my five-day injury prevention challenge this is one email per day for five days, learning new concepts and diving into the science on how you can reduce your risk of injury. The sign-up link is in the show notes, so fill in your details and I'll be waiting for you in email number one tomorrow. Clearer than that. Yeah. Well, we've done well talking for the last 20 minutes about shin splints without <laughs> actually talking about the, the device itself, which was yeah, my yeah. second question on my, on my list of questions here so i think it sets it up really well what is, hole, is it? yeah, yeah what, what is this product and how is it involved how can you explain it without people like visually looking at it yeah all right so key thing to get it to understand about this product it was made with the purpose of taking what works so we see we see graded running programs work we see if you've got you know some biomechanical faults if you're for example a midfoot over pronator you can get the right shoes, the right, the right orthotics to help address that in the short to medium term. It's about taking all these things that we know work, strengthening as well. 
and going, all right, it takes too long. Basically, it, it like takes way too long to get over this and recurrence of the injury is high. Could we make something that sped up the process if, we will, if you wear it alongside all these other things? And then could we make it more reliable? And then for those athletes who say you're in the last month of your season or the last two weeks and all of a sudden you start presenting with symptoms, you're not going to follow the, the current standard of treatment. You're not going to follow the king or queen of treatment being load management two weeks out um, from your main event. You're not going to back off. So could we give them a pain management tool? So those are the, that was the purpose of making the device. The device basically takes, we thought of this analogy to explain it, you know, so there's a road bike and there's a downhill bike at the top of an off, off-road downhill track, real steep mountain, right? Um, it's got rocks, it's got jumps and everything. You're looking at the road bike, right? It's got a nice frame on it, but it's got no suspension. You're looking at the downhill bike, same frame, say it's made of the same materials, but you've got the springs and the dampener, you've got the suspension kit. So we looked at that and went, all right, everyone's focusing on the frame. They're all looking at the bone loading, you know, the redistribution of forces by looking at midfoot pronation. Could we support the shock absorbers? Because if you go downhill on that road bike, you're going to have a sore ass and you're going to break the frame. That's the whole reason the suspension kit exists. So for all the runners there, your suspension kit, not just, it's not the whole part of it, but your soleus, like your calf muscle takes up to eight times body weight per stride when you run. Like that is your suspension kit and we wanted to show it love. So the device works by reducing tension in the soleus. So you wear it after training for, up for 30 minutes to two hours. You walk around the house. It targets, you basically have these three nodes that target the, how would I say, the origins and insertions of your soleus. So if you think of your soleus as a triangular tent, you know, we're targeting the corners because we know if we reduce tension in those corners from other research that we can reduce tension through the whole muscle. We can reduce what's called muscle over contraction, right? So that's taken from this myofascial pain disorder research. So that was how the soleus works. Now, there's also a rod which compresses that side of pain along the distal third of the border. And then there's four straps which house it all together and those straps also pull your calf around to reduce any pull from tight muscles or this traction off the border. So it's pretty, it's this, it's a very simple thing when you, when you look at it, but there's a few things at play when you wear it. Um, does that, do you think that explains it kind of all right from what you've seen, Brody? Yeah. So I'll, I'll reiterate. So if you were to look at someone wearing the solution, it's almost like a sleeve that covers the entire calf. So it's like from the bottom of the knee all the way to the the top of the ankle. And it's it's got a couple of different straps around it. And it comes with like this instructional, um, the instruction step-by-step of how to actually apply it. But you slide it on and it covers the, the entire calf, the entire lower leg, yep. you could say. And then you're applying straps at different points of the calf and you're applying it in a certain way that it would... Um, designed to offload the calf and offload the soleus so it's not pulling on that bone while you're walking around after you run so it's not yep. necessarily designed for when you're running but it's after your exercise after your training sessions put it on yep. and then it's meant to just offload it and give it a break and let it settle is that right yeah and then we've seen um 
so when when you're at where we we did we did a study so the average the average improvement in on the needle wall measure so improvement in dorsiflexion it's a good measure of reducing seeing how we reduce tension in in the soleus and through through the calf um, average improvement was 21 percent in an hour um, so a good reduction we've seen people get significantly larger reductions when wearing a sustained uh, over a month plus in case studies. But then the key thing here is you wear it after training, you're not immobilized. You know, the way Brody and I described it, if you think of it as a sleeve with four straps that you just strap on, it's, e it's as easy to put on once you put it on once it's, and you've, you've kind of lined it up where it needs to be on your own calf because it's tailored to you. It's just like putting on another shoe, lacing it up, and then you just walk around the house, cook dinner, and then you get all that soft tissue therapy needed to help you recover from and treat medial tibial stress syndrome. And, you know, the RCT, so the randomized controlled trial, um, it was used alongside all those other things. We had everyone returning just after a month, just about five weeks time um, to full load training with no recurrence or pain uh, for the full six months we followed them through the study. Uh, and then the placebo was a compression sleeve. Um, so a lot in research showing how for medial tibial stress syndrome as placebo effect for those compression sleeves, um, you know, they took longer than six months, like they hadn't recovered, um, which is what reflected the typical, the typical return as we saw in those, you know, nine month plus uh, studies. So yeah, the device sounds a bit complicated. If you look at a picture, it's pretty easy to, to kind of wrap your head around just four straps and a lot, whole lot of little things interplaying and just kick back on the couch and eat dinner and away you go. Yeah. Can you maybe explain um, that or those particular studies that you mentioned, like yeah. how, how many recruits did you get? How many did you follow? Um, yep. Were they like randomized to to the control and to the, the device um, yep. groups? Yeah. So the, double-blinded randomized controlled trial. Um, so that was randomized. So they were randomized. We had the joy of sports medicine and getting athletes with medial tibial stress syndrome. So it was run by an external sports physician. Uh, and my colleague was basically helped support it. Will. So the sports physician was Dr. Tom Longworth at Sydney, sorry, Sydney sports medicine uh, in Homebush. Um, they had, 21 recruits present to, to the study. Uh, and then basically the trick with this is we needed patients who only had MTSS. So anyone who had MTSS for eight weeks or more was over 18 and didn't have anything else was then invited. Uh, so 14 people were taken through the six months uh, until the team got statistical significance and clinical significance, uh, which is why they stopped at 14. And for those listening, that basically means mathematically there's a significance between the placebo and device group. So they can confidently say that they, they're happy with results. And then they also saw clinically, clinically relevant results. So they were looking at the group of people with the device running and enjoying themselves. And then everyone <laughs> in the placebo group, just miserable. And, and they hadn't, hadn't returned yet. In the ankle ROM study, there was 30 participants. That was only for an hour. Um, so it's easier to find those people. And, you know, that study was basically was randomized to what leg they wore it on. And then their other leg was the control. Um, so they wore it, say they wore it on their right leg, their left leg, 
They didn't wear anything. Uh, and then we use that as a control. Okay. Um, back to the, the study with the 14 people that you followed. Yep. For people who are listening who aren't familiar with like this terminology, so when it's double-blinded, it means that the participants in the study are given, like you said, the, the solution and the other half were given like a compression band a compression stocking or something. And the contest, uh, the people who are participating don't know what group they're in. They don't know if they're being studied yep. as the, with the device or without the device. Um, so that's where they're blinded, but also on the other side, those who are assessing and testing things um, and compiling the results, those people putting together all that data don't know which groups the participants are in as well. So they can't yep. kind of manipulate the numbers or say like, influence their answers in in any particular way so across the board it's all unbiased yep yep okay and then yeah and then to top that off we yeah we had the external sports physician or sports registrar tom longworth helping us with it as well to make sure you know for us we did an what's called an investigational an investigator initiated study so he was looking for a study um and then he used our devices to assess their outcome on medial tibial stress syndrome. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, for us, that was very much right. I hope it works because it's out of our control. Uh, yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. um, and that's, that's what some people don't realize. We, we get asked, oh, well, surely, you know, you know, oh, did you, you know, you know, are you like a big pharmaceutical company, you know, who, who, you know, mucks around with the numbers and it's like no <laughs> no we, we found someone external to do it for us you know we were athletes we got junk sold to us so it was really important to us to make sure we determined if it worked first um properly and ethically uh and then decide from then all right have we got something that works and is it worth it um to then start giving it to everyone else yeah uh, and that's where we're at and then when you're talking about the reaching clinical significance, I guess with 14 participants participating in the study, like compared to a lot of other RCTs, that's yeah, oh, it's average or low, but a lot of times when, when you try, have to try and meet the clinical significance, the smaller the group, the larger the, um, the larger the, I guess, outcome needs to be or the yeah. more different the outcome needs to be. So if you get... Yeah. 10 people and the experiment group is only a little bit different or a little bit improved. They could say, well, that there's a likelihood there's chance there that just because there's so few that it could just be a random chance that they've got a little bit better. Yep. But if you have 10,000 participants and the experiment group gets a little bit better, then yep. they can confidently say, we've got enough numbers. We've got enough population size here to have our confidence to say, yes, it is making a difference. And so with this small sample group of 14 people, I guess you might, you'd have to reach quite a large difference in the experiment group to have that confidence to say, yes, this is yep. clinically significant. We now know, we now have confidence that this device is improving rather than random chance. Yep. And that's, and that's the thing, like this, this study, it's the second largest investigational device study on medial tibial stress syndrome ever. Right. According, not that that's something that's been passed to me. And I was like, oh, because of course, at first, when they said, all right, we see statistical significance, clinical significance, I was like, at 14, they're like, yeah, this is really good. Like, it's quite obviously getting some good results. I was like, 
is 14 enough? And they were like, yes, it's the second largest. It took, you've got to remember any runner who walked in, they had MTSS, they passed all the inclusion stuff, and then they asked to be guaranteed the device and not the placebo. They were unable to be included. So they were walked out the door. And that was a very, very regular Right. Yeah, could like imagine. Very, like very regular. Pretty pretty much I think more recruits, um, potential recruits, they just wanted to be guaranteed. And for those listening, as soon as you guarantee them, part of the tr- part of the, the magic in all of this device first placebo study is do the placebo group genuinely believe they had the device as well? Right. And that's a question, part of the questionnaire they were asked at the end. Like so every person with the placebo thought they had the device so for us that's good in the sense that right so they received the placebo they thought it was the device that's exactly what you want Um, you want everyone to think they're in the right group um, to actually get those good measurable effects but if they ask to be guaranteed the device then you you just rule them out Um, they're out out of the study and that happened at least i think 30 40 times oh no yeah (laughs) so yeah, but that's that was the problem. Like as soon as you go to an AFL team or a, a prof- you know, an elite professional running club, that's uh, that's the way it is. <laughs> yeah, well, they just want to be better. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so, I, how are people applying this device? What what is the medical recommendations of how to use it? Like how yep. long afterwards? And how are you finding some people are actually misusing it and actually should be have a bit more guidance on how to use it? So. It's recommended to be used before or after training for 30 minutes to two hours. And the reason it's a bit kind of open-ended at the moment is whether or not it's before or after. It's because we don't actually have enough data to say before or after is better, right? So we know that both get results, you know, and we're seeing strong results in both. So we're kind of leaving it up to the preference of the runner now if they want to wear it before or after. I personally prefer after I came from a sprinting background don't touch me I want to be explosive don't loosen my calves don't loosen my shoulders like I want to be you know for me it affects performance in that way but there's a lot of runners who like to wear it before uh, as well Um, so before after 30 minutes to two hours not to be worn when running um, it just becomes uncomfortable you know plus you know I do run quite a lot myself I do 50 60 k's a week it's all don't touch me. Just like, give me shoes. I don't wear a Garmin. I wear an Apple watch, unfortunately. Uh, so give me shoes and my watch and that's it. And that was mirrored across all the runners we spoke to. So we knew when designing this, it had to be a before or after training kind of tool. What we've seen happen, the most common time to wear it seems to be at dinner, <laughs> right? So put it on after you run, start cooking dinner, cook dinner, eat dinner, take it off because you get an hour of wear. And I think it's about a golden hour. It's like a good time to wear it after your runs. You know, people have continued to use them. So they're designed to last for quite a few years, you know, so because, you know, they're medical devices, they're medical grade. We wanted to give you people something that would last. So they get it, wear it. And then once the symptoms have subsided, what's been happening is people keep using it then for just general calf niggles and calf recovery after their runs. So we've seen some unusual contraptions been happening where they've 
taken off some of the what we call our counter-traction technology nodes. So these are the things that help with the soft tissue release, putting them on other straps, moving things around. They've just been using them uh, since. The most common mistake in wearing it or the most common questions, uh, can I wear it to bed? Uh, the answer is no, don't wear it to bed. Um, Basically, it's a medical device. We've safety tested it up to two hours. You don't need to wear it for two hours. You can wear it for an hour. There's no point in wearing it to bed, basically. Um, we don't know if it's dangerous or if it's safe. So therefore, you shouldn't do it uh, until we know it's safe. Um, so don't wear it to bed. And then the other thing is, are you sure I can't wear it when running? And if you really want to have a go, just imagine... So it doesn't cause occlusion, but your calves, you know, they swell up when you run. They, a lot of blood's pumping through your calves. You apply something with focal pressure, it just becomes uncomfortable. So that's that's probably the, the other common mistake. Yeah. And it's not like a compression sock or something that people do wear when running. Like, you know, you wear your skins no. or you wear your, your 2XU compression garments or something. It's yep. totally different. It's the... No the pressure itself is quite strong. It's actually quite firm. Um, yep. So if people are wearing this and they're wearing it over the course of weeks, are we expecting it to um, get people better faster? Are we expecting it to have their pain reduced throughout that the time they're using it? Is the, the overall experience or recovery time quicker and is the, the pain reduced? Yeah, so what you can expect in the short term is pain reduction. So when you wear it and then after wearing it, of course, you know, you're going to run again and then you're going to have some pain stir up again if you're not in a graded running program. Um, so it becomes in the short term, a good pain management tool. That's what it feels like. All right. You've got something that helps you address the pain quickly. You know, if you've got tight calves, you know, and your calves are feeling nasty, your calves are going to feel pretty good after wearing it is the general feedback. But the key thing here is, it shouldn't be uncomfortable to wear. If, if you're wearing it and it feels uncomfortable, you've either got it on too tight or you've got it wrong, which surprises a lot of people. It shouldn't, it shouldn't hurt too much at all. It shouldn't hurt at all. Um, what they can expect with medium to long-term usage. So in the clinical trial, they were only using it for just under three times per week. So if you're using it, you're running three times a week, you wear it for here an hour to 90 minutes after your runs, you should typically expect that pain every time you run to subside and you should notice that the symptoms subside over time. And then by week five, typically you should be in no pain, full load training and, and going and, and shouldn't have any recurrence. Most people continue to use the device after that. We call it the tinea cream factor. Uh, something we recommend, you know, like when you get tinea cream, you know, athlete's foot, you rub the cream on, symptoms go away, everything goes away, still use it for two weeks. We recommend that um, it's not based on any clinical evidence. It's just why not, you know, why not not go balls to the wall, you know, you know, play it safe to prevent recurrence. Um, but that, that should be what you expect. Quick pain reduction in the short term. It will return on your next run, but over your runs over a period of time, about a month, it should subside during your runs and eventually you should be running with no shin pain. It's it's good that you do mention uh, the return to run program or some sort of gradual yeah. running program as well, because yeah. it is something that's 
very important because you could easily just use this device and then as soon as you go to your run, overdo it again and then yep. wear the device, overdo it with your running no. again and just not get better. Um, we'll talk about concurrent treatments as well. But yep. um, before we run out of time, I want to cover some patron questions that did come in. I think we've yep. touched on a couple of these already. But yep. um, Anali asks... Is there a difference between shin splints and periostitis, which we've kind of alluded to already? Um, yep. <laughs> or is it the same thing? And she's also wondering um, what what about compression socks? Is that helpful as well? So, um, what do you think about periostitis? Is it the same thing as shin splints? So, it was Ali. Her it? name's Anali. Anali. So, Anali, thank you for the two questions. So, for between shin splints and periostitis. They, there is a difference, but there's also a similarity, and that's because shin splints is an umbrella term. So under that umbrella, we have a few different injuries, the most common being medial tibial stress syndrome. And in the case of medial tibial stress syndrome, if you recall back earlier, we were talking about bone loading and fascial traction. You know, periostitis is, you know, a presentation of excessive load to the bone. So the periosteum gets inflamed. We see that under MRI using that classification system. So in a way it is similar, but for medial tibial stress syndrome, not necessarily the other injuries that fall under shin splints. So it's a bit of a, a it's always lovely talking about shin splints because we always get answers like that, uh, that aren't very direct. So you, it's kind of the same for compression socks and shin splints. Now, obviously this is, this can be a polarizing thing. You know, I used to wear compression socks, not for shin splints, but for recovery in between training, you know, sweared by them. I think what you've got to look at for shin splints is the research out there um, in the Netherlands, um, you know, the RCTs on shin, on, on, return to sport with shin splints and compression socks. We're not seeing any difference, but herein lies the thing. If, if people are happy wearing their compression socks, there's gotta be some effect. There's the effect there, the placebo effect. Some people do seem to get results. Some people do swear by them. If they're working for you, that's awesome. But for a majority of us, we don't seem to get any results. And they ended up being, because of all the research showing that there isn't enough backing to support compression sleeves for shin splints, we were able to use them as our placebo in the clinical trial. But um, yeah, so I wouldn't use them, but if you've got results of them in the past, use them. But again, as you've probably heard Brody and I say, use them as one component to a variety of treatments. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Um, thanks for that question. It was very well answered. Um, Jane asks, can these be caused, well, can shin splints be caused by growing pains? She has a 16-year-old son who's grown several inches in six months um, and now has shin pain. So uh, I'm always happy to jump in as well on my <laughs> thoughts, but what, what do you think? Um, I don't know about growing pains. I know a 16-year-old boy uh, is potentially at high risk because we're looking at, you know, in that population, he might be increasing his load nice and quick. Uh, he might be doing things that he's not used to. You know, at the top end of sport, there's a lot of measures in place to avoid and prevent overuse injuries like this. So they don't have such a big off season, for example. But we see in these teenage groups, 
you know, this constant push to do more and do better and they're moving squads and things like that, new types of load, they are a high risk. As for growing pains, I actually have never asked or never seen anything about it. I don't know if you can connect any dots there, Brody. I don't think so. Um, there's a few potential theories that come up in my mind. Um, one, if it's like a really significant growth, um, I do know that like the bones will grow faster than the muscles and may cause more traction or pulling or load or something. Um, but the other would be weight. If he's put if he's grown a lot, yeah. then he also weighs a lot as well. And we do see with shin splints, heavier people are more likely to to get it. And I think there's some research out there to show that the heavier you are, the longer your recovery time is as well. Like it seems like a lot of people bounce back quicker. Um, maybe that's something, I don't know, but there are a couple of theories that might come to me, but I think the big, um, like exactly how you, you started off with the answer. I think that the big, um, elephant in the room is at that age, they're like really loading up themselves quite a lot and they're very active doing everything every day. Um, and that's when, that amount of time is when things get pretty intense when it comes to workload. Yep. Cool. Um, thanks, Jane. So Rachel asks, would these being this device, this the solution, be beneficial for posterior compartment syndrome and also for alleviating nighttime leg cramping? No. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so compartment syndrome is a contraindication of the device. Um, so, You've got a buildup of pressure. I don't think it's a good idea to apply pressure um, to that spot. I'm sure, yeah, I think the big thing for not posterior compartment syndrome, we get asked a lot about lateral compartment syndrome. So maybe anterior compartment syndrome in this case, would that be the right term? Going to anterior for the tibialis? Anterior yeah. Compartment? Um, yeah. So the deep posterior is probably more common. Yeah. yeah. It's, the thing about compartment syndrome, I know it's for the lateral compartment. So there's there's some new research out about biomechanical overload syndrome, not that new, uh, that was in British Journal of Sports Medicine um, because it's over, basically, I think there was a researcher who got sick and tired of it being overdiagnosed. <laughs> so yeah. he went out and just pursued uh, another answer. Um, for compartment syndrome in general, for posterior compartment syndrome, I really don't have uh, any other answer than no. And for nighttime leg cramping, no as well. Um, we try and really say only use it for what we know it should be used for and what we've shown it to be used for. So we just say medial tibial stress syndrome uh, and then other injuries as an adjunct if there's poor dorsiflexion, so poor ankle range of motion, um, yeah, that's the answer for nighttime leg cramping for posterior compartment syndrome. It's pretty easy. No. Yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> Sorry to the, uh, the person who asked that question. Yeah. Well, thanks Rachel for asking. Um, it's good that we get Thank this, you, Rachel. the, the clear advice anyway. Um, this ties in really well because one, we had a compartments syndrome episode like last yep. month. So it ties in really well. Um, but second, we had um, Greg Lehman on to talk about, how important running is as a part of your rehab. Like it shouldn't just be complete rest. You should be continuing yep. to run as a part of your rehab, which really suits well with this particular device because you're encouraging people to have, to be active and still maintain yep. a, a really nice, healthy, 
non-provocative dosage of running while wearing this device afterwards. And it's good that it's a nice segue into some advice around concurrent treatments that we should do. Cause I could just see as soon as the device comes out, as soon as there's massage balls or thera guns or something, or like a ultrasound device, people just use it as the answer. They think that's the solution they just use. And they think that's going to get them better when in fact they should be using it in conjunction with a lot of other things. And so what are the concurrent treatments that you do recommend if someone does have shin splints while also using this device? So to first answer this question, I want to just quickly say to anyone who thinks at the top level of sport, one thing comes out and all the athletes only use that thing, it's entirely wrong, right? So no athlete would only do one thing to look after themselves. No athlete only does strengthening and not soft tissue work. They do strengthening soft tissue work and every bit of it under the sun that they can find um, when they're really serious. And I think what you need to understand when things like this come out, um, Theraguns, you know, the massage balls, don't be tricked into thinking that that's the only thing you need. And if it helps, understand that all those people who are performing at a high level of sport, they would never use it as the only thing. As far as, as far as I know, as far as all the athletes I hung out with, you throw one thing at them, they go cool and add it to the list of things that they do. Right. So you should never rely on one thing. Now that's why we designed the studies for the solution the way we did, you know, we set out to go, we know graded running programs work, you know, they can just take a while. You know, the joke is that's the hot dog, right? Can we put some mustard on the hot dog? So for the right person eating mustard on a hot dog is a whole new and better experience. And the solution's the mustard for that hot dog. So it increases the value for a group of people, you know, it's not meant to be a standalone, right? Um, And that really came down to the first decision for us was if we make something and offer it to athletes, they're not going to use it by itself, right? No, all the top athletes won't. So what's the point in just finding people who will only use one thing anyway? Why don't we go, all right, here's everything that works, what everyone's doing, graded running programs, they're working with their physio, podiatrist, S&C, the sports physician, whoever it is on the running program on strengthening, you know, so we're looking at, you know, weaknesses, you know, in, in the calves, in the hips, in the core, things like that. You know, we're looking at biomechanical faults, all these things everyone does. Can we improve that? And that's, those, can, those treatments were not meant to be taken away when the solutions introduced the key thing here is if you use the solution with those things you don't have to wait anywhere near as long as they usually take so it's quicker and, mm-hmm. and that's the key thing um does that kind of is that a make sense yeah it ties yeah. in well with my understanding as well like we know with a graded running program we want to find a dosage and a terrain and a speed yep. that isn't flaring someone up it's sort of the symptoms may be a little bit sore afterwards but we want to make sure they return relatively quickly and then we know if they return back to baseline within 24 hours that's a a pretty sure sign that they've not overdone things and then we want yeah go on i was going to say another sorry to cut you off already um 
I found a, a good another good way to think about this is you know when you see the elderly population and their jaws are shrinking, you know they're losing their teeth, they're not loading up their jawbone as much, so their jawbone deteriorates. If you completely rest, right, it's not going to be as severe or you know as as a you know the bone and the jaw deteriorating. But what you need to think about is how bone responds to load. So if you completely rest and don't load up the bone, you know you can't expect it to be resilient in the future. It's going to get weaker. You know, it's mm. going to get smaller, going to get less dense. So you still need to have some load there, which is why grading running programs are so good. You know, we're not asking you to rest completely. We're asking you to, you know, back off a bit. Like you said, find out where we're not antagonizing things, not, you know, making things painful. You know, there's, a pain severity score out there, the winter's pain severity score for medial tibial stress syndrome. I believe you're meant to look at keeping it out at two, two out of 10 on that score. So that's not, you know, fit, you know, like a normal score where you say, oh, I feel like I'm in two out of 10 in pain. It will give you a score of two out of 10 or less after you answer a bunch of questions. So you're still looking for stimulus. If you're not going to stimulate the bone, you know, just think of the jaw, no stimulation, the jaw shrinks, your tibia, it's not going to be happy with no stimulation either. So, yeah, well said. Uh, and then we're talking about strengthening as a possible, uh, another thing to potentially add in if we focus on um, honing on, like say the calf or the lower leg and then work out, work outwards to more like single leg work. I think you can just talk with your health professional to get more advice on that because that yep. would be tailored to them. Um, and orthotics, I, I'm very anti-orthotics only because yep. I've seen people have it over, over-prescribed or they have it as a long-term solution. But actually when it comes to shin splints, orthotics as a short-term solution can be very beneficial. It's probably one of the, um, one of the few conditions I can think of where I actually encourage people to try it out and see if it's okay for them. And yep. that's just on a trial and error basis, but making sure that they don't become too reliant on it and use it as yep. a short, a long-term solution. Um, any thoughts on that? Well, look, there's two studies on orthotics. We know midfoot over pronation. So over pronation is a big risk factor for the injury. And we know there's two studies, one on prefabricated orthotics one of those one of the two studies sorry to reduce overpronation in runners and that got results uh, the other one was to just basically a silicon insole so if you think of a silicon insole if you have a twig and you're just smashing it vertically into the ground and then the twig breaks if you put a nice little cushion on the bottom of the twig the twig's going to be thankful for it because it's able to withstand more load i think the key thing here and what i see from all the best podiatrists in in Australia, in the States and in the UK from who I've been fortunate to talk to is orthotics. They're the short to medium term answer in a lot of cases, you know, so they help you address these biomechanical faults and they go, you go straight to work on the strengthening and the other cue work that you can do to start really addressing that biomechanical fault because, you know, otherwise you're going to be, yeah, as you might be in orthotics for a bit too long. Um, but honestly, like I've, I haven't spoken to many podiatrists, if any now, who work in musculoskeletal in Australia that would just put orthotics on and walk you out the door. Uh, they've, they've got that mindset of here's some orthotics for the short to medium term implications and let's 
work on fixing everything else that's wrong and then get yeah. you out of them. So if we're using this device, wearing it for half an hour to an hour or so after our runs, yep. making sure our running is a good dosage and that we're following that um, gradual running program. Yep. We're doing some strength sessions just if, if required, if needed, following the advice of the health professional. And then yep. if someone's put in orthotics and found a benefit in their symptoms, um, once they are, once the symptoms have significantly reduced or the symptoms have alleviated, weaning off those orthotics back to their previous running conditions, I think they're setting themselves up pretty well to, yep. to overcome those shin splints. Would you agree? Yeah. Are we ticking I, I, all the boxes or is there anything else that we should add? Well, you also just need to look at the shoes, step one. So that's not something necessarily for the runner to do. If, you, if you've got someone that can look at your shoes and make sure you, you're wearing the right shoes, make sure you're changing out your shoes, I think it's up to 400 miles. So whatever that converts to, about 600 kilometres. I think no more than that, 700 kilometres. Um, in your shoes, there's research to say you've got to churn them out. You can't be sitting on your shoes for too long. Um, but also making sure, like, you know, from, from your standpoint as a physiotherapist or podiatrist, if you're looking at the shoes and you can see that there is a biomechanical fault just by the, the shoes wear and tear is presenting, then that's a good indication. But as a runner, change those shoes out. Make sure you're regularly changing them. I don't know how regular 700 kilometres is uh, for, for most people. Um, but shoes are shown to help. Um, again, they're not the answer. They're the one part. The strengthening here is really important. I know we talk about strengthening, but like strengthening here is really important to treating this injury. Like back to that analogy of the this, this spring and dampener, the suspension kit on the mountain bike. You wouldn't take a big jump with some weak suspension. You know, there's a whole reason that those things exist. That's your leg. You've got to be strengthening up the calves and all, and all the other components which might be weak to make sure you're, you're running correctly. Um, and then I think uh, from memory, there's also some research out there for, I don't think there's, it's ever been in an RCT. There might be. So if you go find it, I'm sorry. Uh, for calcium supplements and vitamin D in some, uh, in, in some runners as well, get, getting some good results. So literally you, you, you give this list to a, an athlete, you know, an elite professional athlete, they just do it all. Um, so if you're a weekend warrior, don't just not, don't just pick one thing. Like if, if you're really serious about it, it's a syndrome, MTSS, medial tubule stress syndrome. Uh, so shin splints, it's something you want to be attacking at with a few angles. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well said. Uh, is there anything else that, around shin splints and getting people better from shin splints that we haven't discussed that you think maybe uh, we should mention? No, not really. I just think the first point of call is, you know, making sure you're, you're kind of respecting what the injury is from what we know. I know <laughs> that doesn't sound nice after we were talking about it. it's a bit, a bit uh, of a foggy kind of pathophysiology as to what the injury specifically is, but you need to respect the core thing here, which is, you know, you've overdone it a bit. <laughs> um, so you want to go talk to someone if you're not educated enough on how to reduce your load enough uh, that we're, and then you can slowly build it back up. 
and then all these other things, they're all the condiments to that hot dog. Uh, is is the joke? There you go. So yeah, good, good. So, <laughs> and I'm I'm glad what you're uh, advising is fitting a lot of what the principles of this podcast are and like a lot of what we've talked about on the podcast in previous episodes it all ties in really well and it seems like this device itself is um helps the overall experience like the you know from yeah. uh, the journey to overcoming shin splints it seems like the overall experience is dampened and it does seem like you recover quicker if you use it properly and you've got all these other adjuncts treatments to go along with it and so like you said the idea or the um yeah, the aim of this device itself is to make sure that, yes, we know what works, but it's pretty pretty long to overcome. It's pretty <laughs> yeah. long to get through a strength program yeah. that takes, you know, sometimes 12 weeks plus um, trying to reduce that time because people just want to return to pain-free yeah. running. So it seems like you're doing incredible things. If people want to know more about it or want to purchase one, where can they go? Uh, if you just head over to solution.com, so S-O-L-U-S-H-I-N.com, um, I'll be sure to get Brody to send out a discount code, but I think it's going to be, we'll just go run smarter series uh, as one word, um, and then that will take 15% off uh, any devices, and that will just be for the listeners through through this podcast. Great. Well, that, thanks for offering that discount. Is Would there be like a special link or something that I'd need to include or is it something that they fill out that discount code on the website? So they would just chuck that that code in uh, at checkout. Um, I'll make sure to send it to you, Brody, so you can share it all with them. Uh, and then, yeah, we go from there. A, a key thing for us is we do 30-day returns on the devices and that's because we're trying to help you navigate whether or not this device is for you. So you order it, you put it on, you don't like it, you send it back. Um, we've only had, I think we've had four or five returns in uh, almost 2000 legs now. So it's very uncommon, um, but we're trying to reduce the risk for you because we know it's a new thing. And you, you've got to try it out first. So yeah, make sure you head over to solution.com. I'll get Brody to send out that discount code. Uh, cool. Run Smarter Series as one word. And yeah, we're here to help. Great. Do you know what the discount is? Can we tell them or do we need to discuss that off air sometime? <laughs> well, I was just gonna, I was going to make it 15%. Awesome. Sounds good, mate. Um, thanks for the generous offer. I'll, I'll definitely be sure to include that. Is there any other links you want me to include in the show notes? Um, I'll send you through some stuff. It's from our clinical blog. So it might be a bit dense for some people, but it's not as dense as medical journals, just looking into what shin splints is what, or what they are, um, the muscles that are at play. So particularly the soleus, I'll get that through to all to you so you can share it with them if you like. Yeah, that'd be great. And listeners of the podcast, they, they want to learn more. That's why they're listening. And yep. so other resources so they can learn more and understand more is always a good thing. So I'll, yep. I'll definitely include that. Ben, thanks for coming on and well, um, you, showing us. And uh, I feel enlightened now after <laughs> chatting about shin splints for an hour or so. Um, yep. Yeah, thanks for sharing your knowledge. Appreciate it. Thank you, Brady. Thanks once again for listening. To take full advantage of the knowledge you are building, you need to download the Run Smarter app. This contains all of my free access podcast episodes, written blogs, and ebooks, along with my paid video courses 
all neatly housed into categories for you to easily navigate through and find content you're interested in. Also, be sure to check out the show notes for links to the podcast Facebook group and links to learn more about becoming a podcast patron who contribute five Aussie dollars per month to get Inner Circle VIP access, including an invitation into the exclusive patron Facebook group and a complete back catalogue of patron-only podcast episodes, which you can access within the app. Also on the app, you can even find a link that takes you to my online physio clinic, where I assess and treat runners from all over the world, so I can be on standby if you ever need one-on-one physiotherapy assistance. Once again, thank you for listening and becoming a Run Smarter Scholar, and remember, knowledge is power.